Welcome to this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast, where we look at the trends impacting mid-sized companies and the influencers behind their success. I'm Larry Guthrie, Director of Communications for ACG Global, and I'm here with Katie Mulligan, the editor of ACG's magazine, Middle Market Growth. Now, Katie, I've heard that you had a very special guest on this week's podcast. I did, Larry. As you know, ACG Global hosted Intergrowth last week in San Diego, and Jeff Immelt, the former CEO and chairman of GE, gave the keynote address at the conference, and Jeff was kind enough to sit down with me afterwards. We covered a lot of ground, from his take on President Trump's approach to trade disputes with China to his advice for a company that's looking to become more innovative. And as you know, some of the media's coverage of Jeff's tenure at GE has been less than flattering. So I also asked him to weigh in on what his critics are getting wrong. Yes, I heard Jeff speak during the keynote at Intergrowth, and he had some great insights. I know he touched on some of the same themes in your interview, but he also spoke on a lot of other areas. So even if you heard him in San Diego, I think this one is definitely worth a listen. It's a great episode. I'm really excited about it. So without further ado... Please enjoy Katie with Jeff Immelt. I am here with Jeff Immelt. Jeff, thanks for joining me. Katie, thanks. Great to be here with all the mid-market uh, companies. So to get started, what is the single biggest challenge facing a U.S. multinational company today? I always think it's growth. I, I think uh, if you're a company of size, just given we live in a slower growth environment, there's more geopolitical risk, threat of trade wars and new technology and things like that. I always think for multinationals, it's still uh, important to focus on growth, hmm. innovation, globalization, the things that are going to help keep the company vibrant as time goes on. What advice would you give President Trump on how he's handling disagreements over trade and intellectual property issues with China right now? So, look, I think President Trump's instincts are actually pretty good. Hmm. You know, I, what I would rather see is him more on offense versus you know, more kind of going forward versus pulling back. You know, in other words, I think it's good to say to China and other people, we believe in fair trade, right? Mm -hmm. It's got to be free. It's got to be fair. It's got to work for both sides. I think what he should continue to do and say, therefore, we think it's only appropriate that the U.S. exports to China grow, right? Not cutting their imports to the the U.S., but growing our exports there. So Mm -hmm. I would much rather see President Trump as like the salesman in chief, than stopping uh, a trade around the world. And I think he can do it. But mm-hmm. I think his, look, I think at the, at the core, his instincts are good on trade. Mm-hmm. I really do. So it's more of a pivot. From more of a pivot. Trade. I just would rather see, let's grow our exports. Let's make sure everybody's treating our exporters like we treat our importers and try to make it uh, a truly level playing field, which it really, it really hasn't been a truly level playing field. And GE has been in the news quite a bit over the past year. Some of that coverage has characterized your tenure in a less than positive light. What's something that your critics have misunderstood uh, or they're, that they're getting wrong about your leadership? So the first thing I would say is uh, nobody likes where the share price is, okay, mm-hmm. myself included. Sure. I bought $8 million of stock the last year I was CEO. So I, I, I did that with the knowledge that as the team executes, we're going we're gonna to have a good company going forward. Mm-hmm. I think really two things. I think if people really peeled back and looked at the underlying industrial businesses, they're world class. High market share, uh, globalization, good technology, that creates a valuable company. Mm-hmm. And then I would just say the generational challenge we've had of pivoting from a company where most of the growth came from financial services 
to largely executing financial services has been hard. It's been hard for our investors. It's been difficult for the board and the management team. And that's almost over, really. Mm -hmm. So, uh, look, I believe in the company. Nobody likes where the share price is. And I think with good execution, this is going to continue to be a great company. And you've said in the past of activist investors that they challenge companies to set priorities, to stop wasting money and time, and to work on what is essential. In light of pressure that Tryon placed on GE toward the end of your tenure, do you stand by that view, or has your perspective I really kind shifted? of do. You know, in other words, I've never been somebody that complained about scrutiny or who owned our stock, mm-hmm. really. And, and I and I still believe that the level of scrutiny that they play is part of the world today. Sure. And, and in many ways, our other investors, other portfolio managers, cheer the activists on. Mm-hmm. Right, so I, I just don't think you, there's any percentage in just complaining about all that. I think the critical word, word is to work on what's essential. In the businesses that GE is in, having high market share of the right product creates 90% of the profit, mm-hmm. right? So I, I just think the, everybody that owns the stock, all the board, all the management team, needs to be focused on what's essential. Mm-hmm. And in the case of what's essential, it's high market share of jet engines, of gas turbines, of wind turbines, of MR machines. And, and that's, that's the only thing I'd say is that it's all the, in de- defining what's essential. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what good companies know how to do. And during your time at GE, you placed a heavy focus on digital industrial. Can you talk about what that means? And for companies that are in legacy industries that have maybe been slower to innovate, What's your advice for changing a culture to be more open to innovation? So again, I think uh, this wave of digital technology is going to happen with or without the companies involved. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the case of GE, we tried to pick a couple technologies that I felt would be essential for our competitiveness and our productivity and really our ability to serve our customers in the future. Mm -hmm. And they were things like the industrial internet, uh, additive manufacturing, Mm -hmm. technologies like that that I wanted us to be really essential in. And, and uh, in order to accommodate that, we had to recruit people from the outside. Mm-hmm. We had to redeploy resources. We had to change our business model. But I'm completely convinced we're still in early days and that every industrial company better have a digital strategy or they really risk becoming obsolete. Mm-hmm. And this wave of technology is endless and it's going to impact every industry on earth. And you've already seen it you know, in media and retailing and things like that. But it's also going to be huge on jet engines or wind turbines, or, or and we wanted to be in the front of that. But we couldn't do that without changing our talent base mm. and our business model. Sure. And after leaving GE, it was reported that you were a candidate to lead Uber uh, before removing yourself from the running, and today you're a partner with a, a VC firm. On the theme of technological innovation, what do you expect to be the next transformational technology that's really going to impact all of our lives? You know, I was fascinated by Uber. Because Uber really is the intersection of a horizontal tech company mm-hmm. with a very nitty-gritty operating franchise that really delivers service as a unit of one. Mm-hmm. And I very much believe in this intersection of tech, you know, kind of the physical world and the digital world, I think, are merging. Mm-hmm. And, and Uber is in the front of that. So sure. when I look at healthcare, when I look at some of the industries that I think could, are going to be disrupted... Mm-hmm. I don't really think about Google and I don't think about, you know, I don't think about the big horizontal tech companies. I I think about digitally enabled services that can be delivered with individual patients in individual cities and and with really very much focus on one person at a time. Hmm. 
That's what Uber brings. So that's why I, you know, I, I, I wasn't the right, it wasn't the right time. I wasn't the right person, but I learned so much that framed kind of the way I look at disruption and technology going forward. And there's been a lot of talk of the growing skills gap in the United States, that students aren't learning critical math and science skills, that there's not sufficient technical training to prepare the next generation of manufacturers, for example. In your view, what's a fundamental step that we should be taking as a country to address this? Oh, look, I mean, I think the uh, the country has extremely good universities, the best mm-hmm. in the world. Um, we need to upgrade the way public education is executed in the country. Now, the, the sad part is that, you know, lots of the companies here and elsewhere are going to be able to recruit Maybe they'll have to invest more in training. But unless we fix these things, the wealth discrepancy in the country is only going to grow, mm-hmm. right? Somebody that worked in a GE factory that knew how to do additive manufacturing, a service engineer that knows how to use virtual reality to help fix an MR scanner better, those people are going to make 30 bucks an hour. They're, mm-hmm. they're, going, to, they're going to have great middle-class jobs. But the drop-off doesn't go from like $30 an hour to $29 an hour. It goes from $30 an hour to $12 an hour or $15 an hour. So that, that, that vast gulf between a lower middle class job and an upper middle class job for the people in the country that need these jobs is really all about training and education. Hmm. It really is all about solving that. So I think in many ways it's not a federal thing. It's more of a state by state, town by town, company by company in terms of how best to fix it. And from a business standpoint, look, I think training and education is something businesses do quite well. And we should be willing to do our part with community colleges, apprenticeship programs, things like that. And I believe it was in February last year that GE announced its commitment to closing the gender gap and increasing the number of women in technical roles at the Mm -hmm. company. What are steps that companies can take to improve diversity and expand their talent pool? Look, I think it's it's really threefold. It's, It's about recruiting, retaining, and, and promoting mm-hmm. the right diversity. So this was really about taking uh, from a recruiting standpoint and basically 50% of the engineers that we were going to add new to the company were going to be women. Mm-hmm. So you're basically talking about, let's say, roughly 20% of our engineers from a starting point were women. That if you basically, for a decade, if you make the, the, the entry hiring 50%, you're going you're gonna to be able to make dramatic strides in terms of how quickly you go from 20% to 30% and beyond. Mm-hmm. And that's what we wanted to do. So we, we looked at engineering schools that had women. We tried to promote women engin- uh, uh, professors in engineering schools, all the things you have to do there. Then once you have them, you can't lose them. So you need, you need networks of mentorship and, mm-hmm. and training and things like that that are really critical to keeping uh, women in the company. But one of the most important things are if, if somebody joins a company and can't look up and say, okay, let's say there's 150 officers in GE, if, if there's not 50 or 60 or 70 officers that are women, they say, hey, I'm not going to make it here, right? I can't look up and see that I'm going to be valued or I'm going to be promoted. So I, I always spent time on all three of those levels. And, and I just think, particularly in tech, tech is underpenetrated in women. Uh, Silicon Valley way underpenetrated mm-hmm. in women and I just think this is one of those things that can open up because the talent's there mm-hmm. there's just no doubt about it and it'll make our company better and every company better mm-hmm. well, I think that's a good place to end it Jeff Great. thanks for joining me thanks Katie. Great to be with you 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. Subscribe to the podcast in the iTunes store where you can listen to the past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. While you're there, we'd love if you could rate the show and leave a review to help other listeners find out about us. After you've rated the show, head over to our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, for more stories about successful mid-sized companies and middle market M&A.